Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Good morning. How's everyone this morning? What? You doing well? You know, it's funny, my son, when he was probably about six years old, heard a line, and it always cracks me up. He was six years old, and he'd go up to people. He loved to do this. He'd say, how are you doing? And the people would say, I'm doing good. And he'd say, Superman does good. You're doing well. And he would say that. (laughs) Anyway, has nothing to do with the book of Philippians, but (laughs) jumped into my mind. So listen, if you've been a part of City, you know that we are spending the entire year looking at the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God and how do you live in it? And this morning, what we're going to do is take a four-week look at the book of Philippians in the Newer Testament, and we're going to take a look at it kind of with the lens on is what does it look like to have kingdom life? Because at the writing of Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul, we're going to talk about him in depth in just a few moments, the Apostle Paul writes a good chunk of the Newer Testament, and he's writing letters to people who are following someone who is dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. Think about what the Christian life is. The Christian life is following a dead guy who, oh, by the way, is alive, but you can't see him. You ever thought about that, or am I the only one that has these weird thoughts? People go, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? And I say, well, it means you follow Jesus. And they go, well, where is he? Right? And then you begin to talk to them about the power of the Spirit and all the wonderful things that we know and love and walk in every single day. But the Apostle Paul begins to write letters to churches that are following Jesus. And the letter to the Philippians is a letter to a church that is outside of Judaism. It's a letter to a group of people who aren't Jews. They're what's called Gentiles. And Paul has helped to pioneer that church at the time of the writing of this letter. Paul is in prison, and he's writing these letters, and there's four of them. They're called the prison epistles or the prison letters. And the apostle Paul is writing to these churches to help them to follow Jesus. Now, I have an honest and sincere sincere question. How many of you have actually penned a letter by hand in the last month? I want you to raise your hand really, really high. If it was a thank you letter, keep your hands raised if you've written. If it was a thank you letter, take your hand down. Look at that, about two-thirds of the hands just went down. How many of you actually physically wrote a letter to someone in the last month, like literally? Well, more than I would expect, that's... I'm appreciative of that. But the reality of it is, I can honestly say, I have not written a handwritten letter to someone. It's got to be a year. It's literally been a year. I've written thank you notes. But now when I write thank you notes, my penmanship is worse than it ever was before. How many of you have noticed that? If you haven't handwritten in a long time, you go back. Now, just picture this. Paul's living in a world where the only way to communicate personally, if you're not in person, is to write a what? Is to write a letter. And so Paul's writing letters to these people. Now, one of the reasons why we picked 
the book of Philippians, is because it's the letter that Paul writes where he is joyful and upbeat. The other pastoral letters, are they start out with correction. There's correction in the middle. There's rebuke after that. More correction, more rebuke, and then he ends with a bold challenge. Nothing wrong with that. But what was of interest to us was, what was it about the Philippian church where Paul was so excited and he never rebukes them? That's of interest to me. And so Paul writes this letter and there's no rebuke. Now, here's what we're going to do is we read the beginning of his letter. We're just going to read three verses. That's it for this morning. The next few weeks, we're going to take a deep dive into the letter. But this morning, what I wanted to do was just read the first three uh, sentences or verses. And it's kind of Paul's introduction. I want to read it and we're going to look at it. All right. Are we ready? Is everyone awake? Are you ready? All right, here we go. Philippians 1, 1 through 3. Paul and Timothy, servants, that word should have been translated slave, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people, and it should have been translated saints. It's a much better translation. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, you are a saint. Now say, in Christ Jesus. We're coming to that in just a moment. To all God's holy people, saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, hence the letter, the Philippian letter. They live in the city of Philippi, together with overseers and deacons. That was the church leadership structure. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Then here's the last phrase. I thank my God Every time I remember you, I thank God every single time I remember you. Now, here's the reality of Paul at this point in his life. He's up in years. He's somewhat elderly. And if you were to read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, here's the quote that he's writing in this same letter, first chapter, whether I am in chains, and then he goes on. Paul is actually in chains in Rome, in prison. And he's writing these letters. Now, the reality of it is, the beginning, the first sentence says, Paul and Timothy, servants, and it should say slaves of Christ Jesus. Many of us believe that study the Bible that Timothy is actually penning the letter. It's Paul's letter in Paul's words, but Timothy's writing it. The reason why we believe that, there's another letter that Paul sends to a church that literally says, and so-and-so is my scribe. This is the guy that's penning the letter. It's from me. And then he actually signs it at the end. And Paul says, in my own handwriting. Now, why is that? Well, it's because Paul's going blind. There's evidence in the Newer Testament there's one episode where Paul says to one of the churches he's writing to, he says, you would have taken out your eyes and given them to me. Out of love, they would have tried to swap eyes. And what we discover here, though, is, is that you've got Paul, and you've got Timothy, and you've got these two guys who are writing this letter together. Now, to give you a little brief background on the Apostle Paul. He begins in the Bible as Saul. 
Here's what the name Saul means. Saul in Hebrew means asked for from God, which is a reference to King Saul, the first king of Israel. And what we discover, though, his name is changed on his own accord. In the middle of writing one letter, he just simply begins to identify himself as Paul. And Paul means little or small. That fascinates me. So when we look at Paul and we look at Saul becoming Paul, there's a few things that we discover, and they're important for the point that I think the introduction will challenge us with. First of all, Saul was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. Not only that, we know from his own writing he was part of the tribe of Benjamin. He literally could trace his lineage to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Not only this, we know from Acts chapter 22 that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, who in the world is Gamaliel and why does that matter? Well, Putting it bluntly, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, if you're a Jewish Bible scholar, would be like sitting at the feet of Einstein if you were a physicist. Gamaliel is the grandson of the most famous rabbi just before Jesus comes on the scene. And that rabbi's name is Hillel. Now, if you ever go to a university and there's a Jewish group on grounds, you will hear about the Hillel house. There's one on Alderman Road at the University of Virginia. How many of you have ever seen the Hillel House? That's because Hillel was a rabbi that was absolutely brilliant, and all other rabbis begin, or most began to come up underneath him. Gamaliel was his grandson, and the Apostle Paul was so brilliant, he was being discipled by Hillel's grandson, Gamaliel, which means Anywhere Paul went, if he entered into a a biblical discussion, he could come in and sit down and say, hey, my name is Saul, in other words, the first king of Israel, and on top of that, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, and everyone would go give him the floor. He's the man. Now, not only this, what we know about the apostle Paul is that he was a hard-charging absolutely brilliant intellectual guy, but we also know that when he appears in the book of Acts, he's killing Christians. That's what he's doing. We discover that he stones Stephen to death, and then he gets a letter from the Sanhedrin, the high ruling council of of Israel, and he has a letter that he can go anywhere in Israel and find these people that are Christians, and he can haul them out of their homes, have them arrested, and have them killed. That's what he's doing. What he thinks he's doing, he thinks is right. But on the road to Damascus, when he's going to get another group of Christians to arrest them and kill them, Jesus literally appears to him in light, and the Apostle Paul is blinded, and he hits the ground. And because of this bright light, he also hears Jesus speak to him, and there's this incredible transformation in Saul's life. What ends up happening because of that Jesus encounter on the road to Damascus, the book of Acts tells us that he goes blind for three days. And at the end of those three days, God comes to a a Jesus follower by the name of Ananias. He says, Ananias, listen, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go find Saul. He's been blinded, and I want you to heal his eyes. And you can read right in the book of Acts Ananias goes, wait, what? 
And he literally says to God, that guy kills people like me. He's been hunting us. He puts it this way, he's done great harm to the people of the faith. And Ananias is thinking, I think it's better he's blind. It's literally what he's saying to God. And God goes, oh, no, 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 no. What you don't know is this guy is going to become the most famous missionary the church will ever see. I need you to go lay hands on him and pray over him and set him free. And what the text tells us is when he is prayed for, that what seemed like scales fell off of Paul's eyes and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Saul is now being transformed and he eventually becomes Paul. He goes from the one that is resembling the king to the one who when he looks at himself, he says, I'm small. I'm small. He used to think he was a big deal. Now he knows better. Now, what we find is that we look at the Apostle Paul and these events of his life, and then when we look at the very first sentence that we read in the text earlier where it talked about Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now we know who Paul is. The next question is, who's Timothy? Who is he? Well, what we know is Timothy is really in Greek, Timotheus, which is when you take Tame, which is worth or merit, and you take Theos, which means God. His name literally means honoring God. Timothy is a unique guy. First of all, we know from a letter that Paul writes to Timothy, because Timothy was one of his young pastors that he's mentoring, he says to Timothy, listen, Timothy, your grandmother had faith, your mother had faith, and now it dwells in you. Here's my question. How many of you grew up in church? You grew up in church, real high. If your faith was passed down to you, raise your other hand. Just, you understand what I mean? Like, your grandmother, you can trace the lineage. Your grandmother, your mother, now you. That wasn't my story at all. But did you notice how many hands went up in here? You're like Timothy. For those of you who raised the hand, faith was passed down to you. Paul has a dramatic, supernatural, radical conversion on a road to kill Christians. And Jesus gets a hold of him and transforms his life. Timothy, on the other hand, was what we would call churched. He was churched. Now, let's look at some more stuff about Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 12 through 15, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who is now the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And I want you to listen carefully to what Paul writes to Timothy. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are, what's the next word? Young. We're going to come back to that. But set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and life and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Paul writes this to Timothy. What does it tell us about Timothy? Well, if you read between the lines, there's two things that's obvious. Number one... Timothy is neglecting his pastoral duties. Paul writes to him, 
and says, you need to keep doing X, Y, and Z. Timothy's been backing off. The first sentence tells us why. Why is Timothy backing off? Because he is young. God had chosen Timothy to be the pastor of the church of Ephesus, but he was too young culturally to be a leader in culture. But Paul says, oh, no, 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 Timothy, God is using you, and the culture thinks you're too young and you're not. But what does Paul have to tell Timothy? Don't, look, don't let anyone look down on you because you're... All right, can I push the pause button real quick and be totally honest? In the church that I was raised in, the first church that we stepped into, you had to be older than Moses' grandfather to sit on the board. Do you know what I'm talking about? You had to be like 70 years old or older. And I remember when we went to a church once and they had people in their 30s on the church board. I remember what my dad said. He wasn't a Jesus follower at the time, but here's what he said. They're too young to know anything. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You know what's amazing about the church? God says, oh no, in the kingdom, that's not how we roll. In the kingdom, it's based on your giftings. It's based on your callings. You can do more at a younger age than you absolutely could have ever dreamt. And so God through Paul, is encouraging Timothy, let no man look down on you because you're young. But oh, by the way, Timothy, stop hiding in your office. Get out there with the people. Keep reading the word publicly. Get out front. Do what you have to do to execute your duties. You gotta do this, Timothy. Now, here's another thing that we learn about Timothy. Second Timothy, the second letter Paul writes to him. Second Timothy 1.17 Here's what Paul says to Timothy. For the spirit God gave us is not, does not make us, what's the next word? Timid. But gives us power, love, and self-discipline. You know what Timothy struggled with? Timidity. He was shy. He was deeply insecure. So insecure that Paul has to write two letters to him. And in the second letter, Paul writes this. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. I've seen people send this verse, and it said the other way in the King James. God has not given us a spirit of fear but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. There are people that send that verse, and it's totally out of context. You know what the real context is? Timothy is timid. He's shy. He's filled with anxiety. And he's filled with self-doubt. And he struggles terribly. And Paul writes to him. And he's pumping him up and encouraging him. And he says, Paul, God's, or um, Timothy, God's given you a spirit not of tim timidity. Stand up. Do what God's calling you to do. He'll be with you. He's going to give you strength. And how do we really know that Timothy struggled with anxiety? It's crystal clear. 1 Timothy 5.23. Here's what Paul writes. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach. Have any of you ever gotten anxious to the point where your stomach bothered you? Okay, let's rephrase this. How many of us are alive? 
Do you know what I mean? Have you ever gotten there? And here's what Paul does. He says, Timothy, listen. As my wife would say in Italian, you have agita. Your stomach is messed up because you're anxious. Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Notice what Paul didn't say. He didn't say, Timothy, go get healed. If you had enough faith, you'd be healed. Why aren't you healed? He doesn't do that. Wine was medicinal. It was a form of medicine. And Paul is leading Timothy and says, look, go take some medicine for your stomach. Go do that. Stop just drinking water. Notice he doesn't say drink Pepsi. He just says, don't drink water. Drink wine. It's medicinal. Now, I want you to picture these two people together. Now, just picture this. Who wrote the letter to the church of Philippi? Paul and they're together. They're doing life together. Now, all I can tell you is this, is that if there was an ever an odd couple to sit down and write a letter together, it's them. Paul's supreme intellect, he's up in years, he's a proven man, he's absolutely genius, he's type A, he's driven, all of that. And then who's writing the letter with him? Timid Timothy, who's too young. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. But because of Jesus, they're doing life together. They're doing life together. I remember when I began to get serious with my faith and I stepped into a youth group and the kids in the youth group, almost all of them went to the school I was in. And I remember stepping into this youth group and there were about 15 of us. The youth group grew to a couple of hundred. There's what we would call a revival in my high school where God just began to move by his spirit and young people began to come to faith in Jesus. Our youth pastor, his name was Nicky Camarada and he was a street fighter from the streets of Trenton and had got radically saved and became our youth pastor. He drove my mother crazy because he didn't care about safety. He didn't care about anything. He just wanted, we'd go on rafting trips and kids would get lost. I mean, he just wanted to talk about Jesus, you know? If a kid was lost, he'd say, oh, God, I'll find him. It'll all work out well. You know, that kind of a, you, I loved it though. It's like, I love this dude, man. Anyway, I remember going into this youth group. By the way, that's not a good way to be a youth pastor. Let me qualify. <laughs> but I remember walking into this youth group. There were about 15 of us, and I walked in. I was a little more on the athletic side in high school. I remember sitting down at this youth group, and I look across, and there's a, a kid that I know from high school who's what would have been viewed as more of an intellectual. Now, I did play in the marching band in high school. I played trombone, and there was a musical kid, and I kind of knew him, and then there was an athlete, and then a handful of but I remembered thinking to myself, sitting in that youth group, what in the world are we doing sitting together? Because in high school, these groups don't even talk to each other. And then I watched as Nikki Camarada always told a street fight story and Jesus dying on the cross in the same story. And all of a sudden, the youth group just began to fill in with people coming to Jesus. And I watched something that I knew should not happen. And that is people who were polar opposites were now sitting together, breaking up into small groups, and they were doing life together. 
And the reason why was because of the kingdom of God. Because much like you're too young to be at that level, that doesn't work in the kingdom of God. Same as those social structures that keep us apart outside the kingdom dissolve in Jesus. They dissolve. And I can remember doing small group studies with kids from my high school that if it wasn't for Jesus, there's no way. And we learned to love each other and we did life together at a deep, deep level. Here's what I want to say. This letter begins with two names. Paul and, what's the other guy's name? They're polar opposites. But because of Jesus, they're doing life together. And I would submit to you, the Apostle Paul would have never been the Apostle Paul without Timothy. And Timothy would have never been who Timothy was without the Apostle Paul. And if it hadn't have been for Jesus, there's zero chance they would have sat in a room together and done life. But here they are writing a letter together. Now, one of the reasons why I think that the Philippian church does so well is because somehow, some way, Paul and Timothy have modeled a unity and doing life together that can only be found in the kingdom of God. And they're modeling that. And I would think that as the church of Philippi gets that letter, they go, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Timothy, Paul, you got to be kidding. These two wrote us a letter together. There's something in that that challenges us as a church. It's interesting to note that the Apostle Paul writes in that last sentence that we read. He says to the people, I thank God every time. I remember you. As the Apostle Paul closes out his letter and we begin to think about doing feet or putting feet to your faith, I want to ask ourselves this question. Who are the people that are in your life that if it wasn't for Jesus, there's no way. There's no way at all. And more importantly, who are the people in your life that when you think about them, you remember them? Paul put it this way, I thank God every time I remember you. My prayer is that it wouldn't just be people from the history of your life, but there would be people right now in your life today that you're doing life with and you're walking with. And although they're the complete opposite of you, God is doing something unique as you gather together because of who he is and what the kingdom of God does. As we close out our time and we prepare for communion, I want you to take out the communion elements now before we take communion, we're going to have a brief time of worship. But if you wouldn't mind taking out the cup and the bread and standing to your feet in God's presence, and as we stand together, I'd like for you to hold that cup and take a moment as you close your eyes to give thanks to God for those people in your life that have spurred your faith. Take a moment to give thanks to God that in Christ Jesus, you're so thankful 
for who they are and what they've done in your life. We're going to take some time to worship. But I'd like for you as we worship to focus on being thankful, to being grateful for those women and men that God has brought into your life.